21, verse 25, the last verse of the book, Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Good morning. Anthony was slated to be on this morning, and uh, he fell sick yesterday. Thinks he's got a stomach virus or something going on. So um, thankfully, we're all reading the same material, and I had some things fresh in mind, um, really ready to go almost, and um, uh, happy to be up here to, to do that and fill in for Anthony this morning. The story of Hannah Reynolds for decades has gone down in history like a tragedy until recently. In 1865, Miss Reynolds was a slave in the household of Samuel Coleman in the Virginia village of Appomattox Courthouse. And on April 9, 1865, in a nearby field, Union and Confederate soldiers met in a battle that would be rather decisive. It would bring the Civil War to a close within three days. The Coleman family had left the house the day before the battle, but Miss Reynolds stayed behind. And a cannonball came through the home and struck her in the arm. It was thought that she died that same day as the battle's only civilian casualty. The Civil War drawing near to a close and freedom coming for America's enslaved men and women seemed like it came too late for her, at least until Alfred L. Jones III began looking into it. Jones is a former school teacher and minister in Appomattox and had been tasked this spring on the 150th anniversary of the battle to give her eulogy. And so he thought, I need to learn more about her. He went to a local library, the Jones Memorial Library, no relation to himself, in Lynchburg, Virginia looking for any documentation he could find on Reynolds' life. He asked the librarian for anything she might have, and uh, she said, well, let's look at the 1865 death register first uh, to see if it has anything for Appomattox. And indeed, when she put the microfilm in and uh, they searched, there it was, 1865, Hannah Reynolds. And next to Reynolds' name, under cause of death, the ledger stated, artillery shell. And so they had found the right woman. No surprise there, that's what it was thought, in fact, had happened when it had happened. But when, uh, then they found some detail under date of death, and the ledger stated April 12, 1865, which was after the uh, Confederate army had surrendered and freedom had been declared for the men and women of slavery in America. 
And Hannah Reynolds, Jones discovered, did not die that same day she was wounded. She had lived for three more days. The ledger also had one key detail. Samuel Coleman, who had owned Reynolds and reported her death, listed his relationship to the deceased as former owner. Those three days meant the difference to her dying in slavery or dying as a free woman. It doesn't say, and I don't know that we can know unless we find more detail, but what she might have fought to stay alive for that very purpose. But she did live to be free. On April 11th of this spring, Jones then delivered this eulogy to Hannah Reynolds as a part of the program held by the National Park Service called Footsteps to Freedom, which many of us are familiar with. The question of the book of Judges, as we come to this book in our readings this week, this coming week, the question of the book of Judges is very similar. Will you live free or enslaved? I hate to keep borrowing titles from movies that have been out in recent years, but will you live free or die, you might as well say, because most of us would probably say I'd rather die than be enslaved, at least in the form of slavery that we've become familiar with in our recent centuries and in most of the world. We would rather die than go into slavery and lose our freedoms, rights, privileges, etc., So this question God posed very explicitly, really, from Genesis through Deuteronomy, on through Joshua and the conquest. This question He posed, will you live free or be enslaved with its forewarnings, with its details, with its prophetic pronouncements, and with the consequences of their choice. God posed this, and it was contingent upon whether the people would obey God or not. That's what it rested upon. Whether you would be free or be enslaved depended on whether you would obey God or not. Now, according to him, according to God, I should have put that up there when I was reading that story, sorry. That's the man Samuel uh, uh, Jones, um, Alfred Jones, excuse me, this spring. The question uh, that God posed, according to him, to live meant that uh, they would be free from all who would oppress them and enslave them in the nations that surrounded them and uh, whether they would be free from their idolatrous religious practices. And so their views of, changed, uh, of things changed. God became, in the book of Ju- Judges, the one who became oppressive, the one who became restrictive, the one who caused regression as far as they were concerned, Because when they looked out among the people whom they were supposed to drive clear out of the land in judgment and to settle that land, 
They weren't supposed to look upon them. They were supposed to completely destroy all signs of their practices. They weren't supposed to ask, how did they do this? How did they worship thus? They weren't supposed to ask questions. They were supposed to eradicate the people and their practices from the land, but they didn't. And so as they looked out among those people, they began to see what they thought was true freedom. They began to see that people were doing what they wanted to do. And that it was very pleasurable, it seemed, to live that way. And their minds changed. And they looked at God differently. They looked at God differently. All of a sudden, the deliverer, the freer of their repression and oppression, became guilty of enslaving them by His laws and His statutes. And His expectations became too great for them, too unreasonable for them. And they were lured away. Now the problem... Our day. Who is the real enemy? People of unbelief today would pose this same question or boldly make the same assertion that it is the God of the Bible, the Christian God, who is the one truly that enslaves, truly that oppresses, and truly is keeping us from progress. And I believe that that has caused many Christians in our day and age to falter, to not be ready for that kind of indictment, to not know how to answer it, and to begin to feel, in fact, as we all have when we've been tempted to sin, that God's being a little too strict. And then we begin to question whether it's worth it to follow God or not. Unless we know the difference between true freedom and true slavery in all facets of our life, we may well fall into this trap of thinking that God is our enemy. It's God who's our enemy. So, Everyone in the book of Judges began to do what was right, not in God's sight, but in their own eyes, as Aaron read for us this morning. Now that sounds free. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That sounds free. There is a sense in which it is free. It's free from religion. And so the question is posed, do you want to be free in God or from God? There is a, a foundation in our own country aggressively, militantly pushing the ideology that our truest, truest freedom in America will come when we're free from religion. It's called the Freedom from Religion Foundation. You're familiar with it probably. You will be sooner than later if you're not. And so, there's another name for this. We could call it moral relativism. 
where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Moral relativism, that is what is morally correct is relative to you or to you or to you or to me. It's a philosophy that asserts that there is no global absolute moral law that applies to all people for all time and all places. And summing up the relative moral philosophy, Frederick Nietzsche, you may be familiar with his name. Frederick Nietzsche wrote, correctly so, you have your own way, I have my way, as for the right way, it does not exist. Nietzsche is famous for his remark and his work, God is Dead. The inspiration for the recent movie, God is Not Dead, that that many of us have seen, it's Nietzsche uh, that that was inspired by in his statement, God is dead, and yet uh, it was not made from his own personal position of atheism, but rather a statement of fact about the secular nature of Europe's own growing secularism in the 19th century. God is dead in Europe was his pronunciation. Later, a student of his work and a Nazi supporter. That's a side note that I thought was relevant. Martin Heidegger wrote this. If God as the suprasensory ground and goal of all reality is dead. If God, as the suprasensory ground of and goal of all reality is dead, that is this God of faith that, that we can't detect by our senses. He's suprasensory. If he is dead, he says, then nothing more remains to which man can cling and by which he can orient himself. Isn't it fascinating that these men understand completely what is at stake? by obedience to God versus rejection of God. Moral relativism relativism in uh, recent times in our culture is played out not so much as a result of the influence of Canaanite gods or our desire for Canaanite gods as much as it is the result of naturalism or evolutionary philosophy being taught uh, so rampantly in our nation. Paul Kurtz, in the book The Humanist Alternative, sums up the end result this way. He said, if man, if man is the product of evolution, one species among others, in a universe without purpose, then man's option is to live for himself. Man's option is to live for himself. We are here today because we profess to live for God. Moral relativism demands that man has the option to live for himself. It's every man for himself, you might say. Or, as we sometimes say, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. Well, it doesn't have to be, but it is under moral relativism. It is under sin. In fact, because even the children of God play into the hands of moral relativism when it's convenient. That's what sin is. And lest we look down our nose at those who don't hold the same worldview as us, let us remember that we fall into the same trap and the same snare whenever we want to go play with the gods of the Canaanites, which were 
freeing us from religion, which are freeing us from sexual restraint, which are freeing us from all moral restraints. Sometimes we go and worship those gods. And so it is, in fact, the problem of the day as well as the problem of of the book of Judges. Without any absolute standard of morality, some would call us absolutists for believing in God and the God of the Bible. Absolutists. Absolutism. You throw an ism on the end, it makes it bad, doesn't it? Without an absolute standard of morality, people will surely cross the line of comfortability. They'll cross the line of comfortability. In other words, if we all cry out, yes, let us be free from religious restraints. Let us see morality as as what we believe to be proper for the day and adequate for the day. Oddly, many who believe this are outraged and absolutely certain that those who threaten violence or practice deceit, for example, against them, ought to be punished for their unethical moral behavior. This type of reaction speaks loudly to an important truth. Moral relativists have a rather dim view of moral relativism when it negatively affects them. Now we want to call out for something absolute. We want to call out for something that that transcends these terrible views of men. But there's nothing to call out to if we do not believe in God. If we do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who brought this new covenant to us and stamped it in His own blood as the way of men and as to what God will hold us accountable for our lives this day. Under this philosophy, there can be as many different viewpoints of what is right and wrong as there are people. And who gets their way will ultimately be determined by those who wield the power. If there's no God, this philosophy, no matter how ugly things get, is true. But if there is a God in Israel, if there is a God of the New Testament body of Christ, then it's a grave, grave mistake to say, Let us do what is right in our own eyes. When we enter into the book of Judges, Jehovah is King of kings and Lord of lords, and the world is now aware of it. The world is aware of it. His plan from before the Exodus, that the world may know that I am the Lord, certainly uh, carried its message through the land. And so when Israel faced their uncertain future, they would inquire of the Lord and He would answer them and He would guide them and He would deliver them from their troubles. There was no need for a human king as long as God was present and no need for royalty when you had the Levites acting in that supreme role of of holiness to the Lord and, and mediating between God and man on your behalf. But the tragedy of the book, and this is, in my view, the darkest book in the Bible. The darkest book in the Bible. The tragedy of the book is that Israel dethrones God and reap consequences of the decision to worship the gods of the Canaanites. 
Judges records some of the most grotesque acts of moral relativism, which many in our own nation are pushing for today, indicting you of enslaving them with absolutism. If you want to read the end result, read the book of Judges. Don't say, ooh, this looks like it's going to be a skip over it. Read it. Sit down. Don't read on an empty stomach, but do read it. And before you shout unfair, before you shout foul, remember that we too can become guilty of the same thing and and we also are under sin and in need of a deliverer. And so with each book of the Bible, the question must be asked, what does the Spirit of God say to me through the Word of God that I might become like the Son of God? It says there's a cycle of sin and salvation that takes place. It took place here with the nation of Israel. It takes place through the history of men and in nations. It's taking place in the United States of America right now. I hope it's a cycle. It takes place in your own personal life. And so I want you to think of this in terms of perhaps your nationality, but I'd rather... And more pointedly, as God does, wants you to look at this in terms of your own spiritual life. That's what will come through in the end. If America someday should fall, we will still have to stand before God. And what America has done, unless we have contributed to it, may not have any significance as to whether we enter heaven or not. That depends on our decision to make God our Lord or not. In chapter 3 of the book of Judges, and go ahead and open up to uh, chapter 2, actually. Let's, let's, let's do some reading. We'll begin to see in Israel what is a most typical pattern of human behavior, a cycle of departure and return to God. Here, for example, in this slide, you'll see that cycle in more detail. Perhaps some of you can't read it. Uh, the writing is a little smaller than I like to use most of the time. But there is peace in the land under Joshua. There was peace and rest from their enemies. They had subdued the land of Canaan, subdued their enemies. There was no more fighting. Nobody dared challenge them. They couldn't stand before Israel. However, there were many still living in the nation. They may have settled certain cities, but there were other cities that they had not driven out of Canaanites yet. And so there was work to do, though there was rest at the time. And Joshua emphatically, even on his deathbed, on two occasions in his old age, called all the leaders of Israel together, the priests, the military captains, and said, drive them out. God will go before you and drive them out. You have to finish this job. And they didn't. And so you'll see before very long, Israel began to do evil in the sight of the Lord. God said... Not passively, I'll just let, let you have your way and I'll stand back and see what happens. He said, I will turn against you as I turned against the sinful nations who were in here before you. There's no partiality with God when it comes to sin. He doesn't have favorite people. He loves the whole world. And so when his people start to act like the world, he will judge his people. As Peter said, if judgment begins first, and the house of God will be the end of those who do not believe. 
That was in the New Testament. God punishes through the enemies, just like he punished the enemies through Israel. He'll turn the table. And Israel actually became enslaved, either in hard bondage like in Egypt, or in tribute, or at least they lost their freedom as a nation. They cry out to the Lord, and God raised up a judge. Thirteen cycles of this in the book. Thirteen times. You'll see the cycle played out. Israel would be delivered by that judge, and there would be peace in the land, land as long as that judge was alive. And then when that judge died, the people would begin to play harlotry, as it's called, with the Canaanite gods. The judges were leaders chosen by God to save the people from their enemies and from themselves. They fought battles, they acted as governors, and gave spiritual guidance. As long, although Samson, you call him into question about giving spiritual guidance, for example. But for the most part, they were to give spiritual guidance as well. And as long as the judge was alive, they revered him or her. But as we say, when the cat's away, the mice will play. When that judge died is when they began to forget what was done for them. So they were heroes and heroines because we have a woman named among them, Deborah. Uh, they restored the nation's physical security, their material wealth. But one thing that they could not seem to do was to restore the, the spiritual health of all the people simply by driving out the enemies. It seemed to be in the hearts of the people. It also seems to me, as I read through this, that the sensual nature, the sexual nature of Canaanite religion was a very, very strong pull away from God. And I believe we have that problem going on greatly in our society today. The sensual aspect of sin that is becoming so prevalent, so overt in our society is a strong pull. We have to put up a strong battle. We cannot pity sin. We have to take up arms to raise up children, for example, in this day and age. It can be done. But you better have the mindset that you're going to drive sin out and not dwell with it and among it, or you'll lose. Your generation or the next, for sure. That's a deeper layer of the onion that couldn't be peeled very easily. Now let's read together a few select passages. Let's begin in chapter 2. I want you to see what the angel of the Lord said. The angel of the Lord who appeared to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Joshua walked up and said, are you for us or against us? And he said, no. But I come as the commander of the Lord's army. Ooh. This same angel moved from Gilgal up to Bachim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side and their gods shall be a snare to you. And so it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. 
Then they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed to the Lord there. I say to you, they should have wept, left, lifted up their voices and wept, and then got up and went to battle. They fell short there. They worshipped, but they didn't do the work in driving out, or I might add, in teaching the younger generation who found permanency for the first time in their life, why they had this promised land. They must not have done that great of a job in passing it on to the next generation, coupled with the fact that the pull of the religions around them was very, very strong. Let's take a look now at verse 10. When all that generation, this is Judges 2.10, when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which had been done for Israel. Now that's where I make the statement, what were the parents doing? How did you not know the work? It's one thing to not see it and not hear God's voice from a mountain or from a pillar. It's another to not know the work. There's a note for those of us raising the next generation. Then the children of the Lord did evil in the sight of the uh, children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and they forsook the Lord. Verse 12, they followed other gods. They bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. Baal and Ashtoreth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, verse 14. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. That's an interesting word because he allowed them to spoil their enemies when they went in. Now they're being despoiled. Stuff's getting taken back away from them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around. You see, God owned them, but they wanted to be sold. So he sold them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. A promise that God said you'll always be able to, no one will be able to stand. Now they couldn't stand. And the Lord was against them for calamity, verse 15, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. You see, these first two chapters are setting up the book. It's showing this cycle. Now in chapter 3, you'll see the first cycle with real people and real names. There were five Philistine lords, chapter 3, verse Three who remained. There were those who dwelt near Mount Lebanon and those who dwelt near Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. And they were left that he might test Israel by them. I propose to you it's a lot easier to live driving out all sin and all enemies than to try to dwell with it and have God say, very well, if that's your choice, I will test you by this. And you have to pass his tests. A lot easier to drive it out when he is for you and you are for him. And to eradicate every trace of sin. 
We let sin dwell among us in a lot of ways. I challenge you to think about how it might be in your own life. They were left that God might test them. Verse 5, thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. And here's what they did. They took their daughters to be their wives, and they gave their daughters to their sons, and they served other gods. And so the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand. And here's the real name. From chapter 2, now we got the person that this first happens with, Kushan Rishatem, I don't know how to say that, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served him eight years. And when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, see the cycle happening? The Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. This is Caleb's nephew, a great warrior man of faith of the tribe of Judah, I believe. And here now, Othniel becomes the first judge. And we see this cycle played out 13 times. This cycle pits the freedom that comes with obedience to God against the freedom which comes with refusal of God. There is freedom both ways in a certain sense. There is freedom. The unbeliever may say, you are slaves to your religion and to your ignorance. But don't you know that unbelievers obey their gods with fierce loyalty too? And don't let them off the hook about that. Their God may be themselves, but in reality it is those things which they honor and hold up in highest esteem in their lives in the rejection of God. Paul spoke directly to this fact and concluded that he would rather be a slave to God, a slave to Christ, who is our judge and our deliverer. I'd rather be a slave to this one. Jose read from Romans chapter 6 at the Lord's table in the first part of the chapter. This is later in the chapter, same subject. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one's slaves whom you obey. We all are slaves to something. Whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked, he says in verse 17, that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And that would be the gospel, the death and burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to save men from their sins. That's the doctrine to which you were delivered. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, how bad is this? How repressed am I? Tell me, Paul. He said, when you're a slave of God, your fruit is to holiness and the end is everlasting life. But the wages of sin is death. It speaks death. For those of you who are here for family night, when Anthony pulled from that passage in Romans 3, he quoted from the Psalms, and he said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Their mouths are an open tomb. And we talked about speaking forth death. When you do not have life in your perspective, death comes out. Eat and drink and be merry. It looks wonderful because tomorrow we die. 
You speak death in the way you live. When you live wild, you believe that you're just going to die and that's it. That's not a fruit of leading to life. That's a fruit leading to death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because God made a promise to Abraham to bring about a deliverer for all the families of the earth, Genesis 12.3, in Judges, he is a deliverer who restores the people of God to relationship with God. Jesus is. If he is, in fact, the angel of the Lord. And he resets the moral compass of the people from waves of the sea to the beauty of holiness. Today, Jehovah has given all authority to this judge, Jesus Christ. And as his father has raised him up, think of it. See that figurative nature? He raised up a judge to deliver us from sin, from death, from despair, from deceit. You see, if God is true, every man's a liar. See how this question hinges upon your belief in God? If you believe in God, believe in God. If you don't, say so and live so. But if you believe in God, live for God. It matters what side you take. As Christians, we do not sin nationally quite the same way Israel did. When we think of our nation, we think of America. And we can sin against our nation, but we don't sin as a nation. The parallel to the children of Israel here is the church, not America. The parallel is the church. That's us. Christ is the judge of the world and of America. There are national matters that we are responsible for. I want to make that clear. There are national matters that we are responsible for but will be judged as his body in the church, not by whether or not we're American. You understand that. He will save all who cry out to him, as in that cycle we saw, in repentance and are cleansed of sin beneath the cleansing flood as we sing, being numbered in his camp. Now, whether this is slavery or freedom, today you have to be the judge. But Joshua had a bird's eye view from beginning to end of what slavery was all about. He had seen the true and living God, and he had seen the lives of the Canaanites. And he discovered for himself who truly was enslaved. And that's why he made that great statement at the end of his life in Joshua 24, 15. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether it be the gods that your father served on the other side of the river, clear back before Abraham, or whether you'll serve the God who brought you up out of Egypt. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the context in which he made that statement. Now I ask, how about you? Do you want to live free or live in bondage to sin? I propose to you, that true freedom comes only in Christ through the truth that He is the Son of the living God, 
that he is our moral compass to guide us somewhere, to take us home. But you must decide today. We're going to stand and sing this song, and you'll have the opportunity to decide. If you have not yet become a Christian, you may do that immediately. We'll receive you here at the front.